Driving it home with Patty Vasquez, Patty Vasquez. From global conflicts to greenhouse gases, the folks refusing to wear masks says, and politicians getting caught grabbing asses says, she's driving it home with Patty Vasquez. Hey, hey, happy Wednesday. I don't know. Can you, I think you can be happy on a Wednesday. I would encourage it, uh, even if you have to manufacture that happiness. Uh, you know, just smile. When you smile, it releases uh, serotonin, and you can maybe trick yourself into being happy, even if maybe you're, you know, the the weight of the world is on your shoulders. I'm not saying that uh, everyone does, but maybe you do. Uh, we're so happy that you're joining us today. Uh, and it's a, It was, uh, I believe, a little more... Uh, sunshiny today than we've had in, in a few days, uh, slightly warmer. Uh, it was, look, I went out the other day to meet my son Griffin for dinner. He had gone down to Federal Plaza for the protest for Tyree Nichols. And uh, I said, hey, let's, uh, I couldn't get down there. I was uh, at the forum, if, if you recall, I was off on Monday for the Plow the Sidewalks Forum. Uh, Brought to you by Better Streets Chicago, and uh, we had speakers like the folks from Access Living, as well as Alderman Gilbert Viegas, and uh, the folks who have created this incredible organization, a great grassroots organization called Better Streets Chicago, highlighting the fact that we need to focus on pedestrians, on cyclists, uh, folks who uh, whose form of transportation might be public transportation and getting there might be a little harder, uh, maybe because of a disability or horrible sidewalks, uh, including when they're icy and snowy. And uh, it was a great forum. I didn't have a chance to talk about it yesterday, but I'm so proud to have been a part of that forum. It was informative. We learned a lot about uh, what it would take to get this done. There's going to be, a hopefully, a pilot program. We spoke to a counselor at large from Syracuse, New York, where they do have a Plow the Sidewalks program. And there's also programs in other parts of the country and as well other parts of the world where it's just part of the municipal program to ply this, plow the sidewalks. And I know folks say, well, you know, we barely get the streets done. Well, let's get it both done. We can do both. We are car-centric. We are car-brained. Uh, the idea that uh, cars have priority over those who need to move around the city is kind of a little bit, it's a little bit backwards uh, if you think about it. If you think about the fact that getting to and from your car would be much more manageable, getting to and from public transportation uh, for those who are elderly or disabled to be able to leave their homes and participate in our communities would make a great difference. Being able to get out and go to work, go to the grocery store, go to the pharmacy to get medications, go to church. Uh, so I was really impressed with the with the work that's being done uh, to highlight this part. And, and it, it's really a, big, a bigger picture when it comes to pedestrian safety. And uh, it's a conversation we need to keep having. Uh, but I met with Griffin. So Griffin was down while I was doing the forum. My son Griffin was uh, at the uh, Federal Plaza to protest uh, the militarization of our police departments. And uh, and I uh, said, well, hey, I, I can't get down to pick you up. I want to drive you home. And I was bringing some stuff for him for his dorm room. And uh, I said, look, can you get on the train and I'll meet you at a restaurant? We went out for uh, for sushi. Muslim, like, he likes sushi like I do. And uh, he got there. And if you recall how freaking cold it was on Monday, uh-huh. it was measurably eight degrees. But with the wind chill, I believe it was negative 12. He shows up. 
And I, you know, I was really in my heart. I was like, please, please at least be wearing a scarf. Nope. No hat, no gloves, no scarf. I get, I get that at 19 years old, you feel like you are vulnerable. Uh, you are invincible, but you are vulnerable. He is not <laughs> invincible. And, uh, and, and I, I walked two blocks from uh, from the Access Living building to Friend Sushi on on State Street, and I had gloves and a scarf and a hat, and like I was, my body was starting to seize up on Chicago Avenue. I was like, I gotta get there, and uh, and he was shivering. Like he doesn't want to admit it. I get that people don't don't want to admit that they when they're exposed to frigid temperatures that it has an effect on their body. He was shivering at our table for a bit. Uh, I made him go home with my mittens. I had these. I, I use. Um, oh my god, you guys! I have the most amazing pair of mittens, uh, but they're they have the flaps, so you they they have the fingerless gloves as well, and they're ice fishing gloves. <laughs> I used these when I was campaigning, so I have three pairs of them, and they're the best. They are. The, I don't have the name of them, but they are the best gloves on the market. I think they have like a little fuzzy lining to them. They're built for ice fishing, you guys. But I made him uh, anyway. Made him take my uh, my gloves with him. Uh, but anyway, it, today was was it felt balmy compared to how it's felt for the last couple of days. So hopefully, uh, you've had a chance to uh, you know take care of yourself. That's really one thing that we we need to reinforce and uh, and embrace is self care. And part of my self care, as many of you might know, is my my uh, uh, sense of humor. Uh, I uh, things uh, while they are dark and twisted and awful, I go seriously. Is this person crazy? Because this sounds really, really crazy. Listen to this. This is, uh, someone is super excited to be on a committee. I don't even know which committee this is. Uh, I, I just, I saw the video on C-SPAN. There was a clip of this. Uh, Marjorie Green Taylor, Marjorie, no, I'm sorry, Marjorie Trader Green was uh, in a committee hearing and someone was, all I know is she wanted to know about COVID spending and where the resources were going. And listen what she had to say uh, in reg- well, questioning someone uh, during this committee. Hold on, let me make sure I have this right. Dodaro, can you tell me uh, how much how much COVID cash went to CRT? <laughs> CRT. Critical race theory in education. <laughs> it's, it's a racist uh, uh, curriculum used to teach children uh, that somehow their white skin is not equal to black skin and other things in education. Uh, no, I do not know that, but I, I do know that there's provisions that the uh, federal funds generally are not used, are supposed to be used for curriculum. Oh, Mr. Dodaro, I have to tell you, in Illinois, they, they receive $5.1 billion um, at, at an elementary school there that, that used it for equity and diversity. Um, so it's, it's being used for these things. <laughs> what? Okay, if you listen to it exactly the way she said it, right, which is in Illinois, $5.1 billion went to an elementary school to teach equity and diversity. That's what she said, right? And before that, she said, is it going to CRT? Is it supposed to be going to CRT? You know what that is, right? It's when we make white children feel bad about themselves. They are not as good. They should. Okay. First of all, $5.1 billion going to an elementary school to teach element. What? I, I'm going to break this keyboard, Lady B. Is there, is there a, a, any sort of uh, funding involved from Patty Vasquez breaking equipment in the studio? Is it? 
If it was this year, did you know what this $5.1 billion is going to an elementary school in Illinois? Are you aware? Okay. People are donating money to help teachers have supplies, whether it's paper for the copy machine or art supplies or just having being able to have their kids... Have access to the equipment they need. Is five point one billion dollars? She sounds like who? I don't watch The Simpsons, but she sounds like that. And do you know, do you know where this is going? Who's that boss? I don't see. I just know these things in the background. This is a a member of our. What is happening? Is this, what's happening in Congress, folks? Do you know? And. Okay, critical race theory has been in existence for decades, and it's the the study of how entrenched racism is in our institutions. And it was taught in as as part of legal education, right? Like, how can we take this into account? How do we weigh this when it comes to the way things are playing out, right? Uh, I can't, you guys. I just, I can't. What what is happening? This is why we have our friend KB Marion with her segment every month. Uh, That's not what's happening. And critical race theory is not, explain, if you ask someone, because she just, like, essentially tried to explain to us what critical race theory was. And sure, Marjorie Trader Greene's uh, in- interpretation of what it means is to make white people feel bad. Well, you know what? If you hear about what slavery is, what Jim Crow laws were, what the lynchings that happened in this country that people were murdered, were sold off, were separated from their families, if that makes you feel bad, oh, just then you have empathy. You know what that means? That means that you have empathy for the human condition. If we are teaching our children to go, you know what? Let's not let that happen again. You know what? Winner, winner, chicken dinner. That's not really eloquent. It's not what I where I wanted to go with this very impassioned moment on our show. We need to take a break here. Let's talk about Wisconsin next. We're talking to Dan Schaefer from the Recombobulation area. And we need to talk about this, this Supreme Court race. Teachers ask for Kleenex. They don't get billions. Exactly what is happening. Tom Hartman. Look at what happened to the gas prices in the three months leading up to the election. This this is, in my mind, proof positive that the CEOs of the fossil fuel industry, who hate Democrats and hate Biden, wanted to bring down the Democratic Party, and so they jacked up the price of gasoline. And, you know, I'm expecting that they'll do the same thing in two years of 2024. The Tom Hartman Radio Program, weekdays 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. on WCPT 820, where facts matter. This is WCPT 820, where facts matter. Hi, this is Kirk Bankstead from the Manaqua Brewing Company, and I sell Choice Hard Seltzer, an all-natural grapefruit-flavored booze that you can enjoy for only 100 calories a can. A percentage of the proceeds of every can of Choice Hard Seltzer you buy goes to reproductive rights organizations in the Chicagoland area. Enjoy a light, refreshing hard seltzer this summer and support reproductive freedom at the same time. Now available at Dino's Cardinal Liquors in Gurney, Illinois, and Sugar Beet Food Co-op in Oak Park, as well as in Chicago at Jarvis Square Tavern, Rogers Park, and Garfield's Beverage Express Wicker Park. Please drink responsibly. You're listening to Driving It Home with Patty Vasquez on WCPT 820. All right. I, uh, yes, I blew my, I 
blew my I blew a fuse. I can't understand what's happening with Marjorie Taylor Greene, but I also am trying to come to terms with what's going on in Wisconsin because they have an important race uh, on which so much uh, hangs in the balance. Joining us from the recombobulation area is Dan Schaefer. Also, you can find his work at uh, heartlandsignal.com. Dan, how are we looking in the last few weeks heading into this primary for the Supreme Court race? Things are picking up, Patty. It's an intense race. We're less than three weeks away from primary day here at Wisconsin, and uh, the race is heating up for that Wisconsin Supreme Court race that uh, that you mentioned. The the two. I, I feel like most of the uh, most of the news over the past week here has been among the two conservative candidates who are really starting to go at each other uh, to see uh, which of those two, Daniel, former state Supreme Court Justice Daniel Kelly, uh, or Waukesha Circuit Court Judge. Jennifer Doro uh, will emerge uh, as the uh, one of the final two uh, to go to the general election on April fourth. Uh, so, how are they going after each other? What are they accusing each other of? Well, I think uh, you know Daniel Kelly is a very far right wing justice. He was appointed to the court by Scott Walker. Uh, but when he was up for re- uh, election to a full 10-year term in 2020, uh, he lost pretty handily. In the in the time since, you know, he's been on these election integrity, quote-unquote, tours, uh, kind of hanging out with a lot of the uh, the Trump, very Trumpy crowd uh, here in Wisconsin. And now that he's, you know, in this race, a lot of the people on the right thought perhaps Jennifer Doro would be, you know, kind of a rising star in the party, uh, you know, would, would get uh, some of perhaps some swing voters in the suburbs that have been drifting towards Democrats in recent election cycles. But uh, but Kelly has really kind of gone on the offensive towards Doro. And, uh, you know, a, a number of supporters have been critical of her uh, and her qualifications and a whole bunch of different, uh, uh, you know, criticisms being levied at her uh, throughout this campaign process. And, and throughout, you know, Daniel Kelly, uh, you know, continues to, uh, you know, kind of play to the base, play to the far right. Even today, he was, you know, quote tweeting uh, a guy who was at the January 6th insurrection in Washington, D.C. So I think that kind of tells you what type of uh, what type of judge Daniel Kelly would be in the state of Wisconsin, kind of aligned with, you know, many of the far right conservatives that are already on the court. Uh, we had three of the four conservatives on the court in 2020 vote to overturn the election. So I think that, you know, really shows you where he would be aligned uh, if he were to be elected in Wisconsin. How are they like, you know, whenever we try to uh, campaign for issues that aren't necessarily like the presidential race, you know, or the governor's race, these are harder campaigns to wage because you've got to You've really got to highlight what it means to people. Do you get the sense that there is a, a huge uh, there's a lot of energy behind those? Those who want to protect the right of women to have access to health care in all its uh, services, you know, abortion care, obviously, and gerrymandering. I mean, like that gerrymandering is just not a juicy thing, but abortion is something that you can really uh, get that message across. What are you seeing in regards to those two topics? Yeah, the the, the top liberal uh, challenger in this race, Janet Protasewicz, who's a Milwaukee County uh, Circuit Court judge. You know, she released her first two TV ads of the campaign cycle uh, late last week, and both of them focused on the abortion issue. Uh, So she is, you know, putting it front and center in her campaign that she is, uh, you know, believes in a woman's right to choose. She said in a public forum that 
she thought the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade was a wrong one. Uh, and I, I believe she even said it was one of the worst decisions the court's ever made. So, um, you know, so so uh, that is going to be a huge front and center issue uh, as this campaign unfolds. And, you know, a pro to say it's certainly made it a made it a big point of emphasis in her early campaign ads. Uh, you know, she she led the field in fundraising. Uh, going into uh, in the last kind of reporting cycle for this race, she out fundraised all three other challengers combined, uh, and is getting up on TV with those ads focused uh, on the abortion issue. And you know, we saw in the last election last fall in Wisconsin with Tony Evers uh, winning and Democratic Attorney General Josh Call uh, also winning. He, Josh Call is, is has a case that is up at the Wisconsin Supreme Court challenging the state's 1849 criminal abortion ban. Uh, you know, th- those are going to be huge topics uh, going into this election. And, and you know, I, I think it's it's smart of these campaigns to really put it in voters' minds that, that this will be, uh, you know, this will be decided. Uh, you know, these are, <laughs> these are the types of things that these justices rule on. Uh, so it's going to be uh, it's going to be an incredibly important issue. And this is, again, you know, judicial races are are hard to sell. And I mean, I think that a lot of folks paid attention because in Illinois, we had uh, we had two Supreme Court race uh, seats that were open. We also had, you know, appellate courts, circuit courts. We were trying on this show. We were uh, working to make sure that people were aware of who was on the ballot and why it was important, because it's also voter turnout. I mean, that's the thing, too. How how what, do you have any sense of what uh, efforts are being made for get out the vote? in Wisconsin? I'm guessing both parties or maybe more Democrats, because we tend to think the more people that show up, the more likely we are to win. Yeah, I think that the get out the vote effort is going to be huge for this. You know, I think once we get once we get past that February 21st primary, I think the floodgates will open for really, you know, once we get those, you know, a candidate on the right and the candidate on the left, it will be a very clear uh, delineation of, of where people stand, and that will, you know, cause each group to to really dig in and focus on turnout and focus on uh, that issue. And I think, you know, one of the things that I'm certainly paying attention to uh, as this race unfolds is how the campaigning and how the turnout looks in a place like Dane County. Dane County turnout is typically some of the highest turnout numbers we see anywhere in the country. You know, they were, I think, in this last election, they were somewhere like 85% or something like that. The turnout is just staggering. And so you see, you know, in a place like Dane County that votes, you know, 80 to 85% Democrat, uh, you know, a turn, turnout there in, a, in the fastest growing part of the state is going to be a really, really important part of this race. And I think, you know, you'll, you'll look at turnout in rural areas that benefit Republicans, some of these, uh, you know, old. Republican strongholds of Waukesha County, places like that uh, around the Milwaukee area, uh, you know, those have been drifting towards Democrats as well. So it, it's going to be a really interesting to see kind of where the turnout is, uh, because this spring election is in an off year. You know, many times we've had these state Supreme Court races in the state of Wisconsin that have aligned with, you know, things like presidential primary. That happened, happened uh, in 2020. There was really high turnout then. It happened in 2016. There was high turnout then. So I think, uh, you know, when, when these have not aligned with things like presidential primaries in the spring election, the turnout has been down. And I think people will point to 
the race in 2019, also an off-year spring election for Wisconsin State Supreme Court, uh, when conservative Brian Hagedorn won by just 6,000 votes, less than 1%, uh, or about one-half of 1% of the votes that Brian Hagedorn won by then, and that decided, you know, that played into uh, the court being at that 4-3 conservative majority that it is now. Hagedorn has been in many ways the swing vote, and it's been interesting to see, you know, many of the conservatives talk about him uh, on the campaign trail, but because I think a lot of he, he has sided with Democrats in a number of key cases, or not Democrats, liberal-leaning justices on a, on a number of key cases, uh, and you're seeing people like Daniel Kelly criticize him for that, uh, criticize him for going across, uh, you know, ruling along with the liberal justices on on things like upholding the 2020 election uh, or having oh. the governor to, uh, <laughs> the nerve. rule on, uh, you know, the safer at home order from the uh, from the early part of the pandemic in 2020. So some key cases uh, that, that Hagedorn has ruled on, uh, you know, painted as a moderate, but saying that he, saying that we should not overturn the election. Uh, I guess, qualifies as moderate for Republicans in the state of Wisconsin. Right. <laughs> right. Well, and that's that's a kind of a, a decision that Republicans have to make is how far to the nuttiness are we going to lead lean? And uh, and you've also uh, pointed out that, or speculated about because you guys have the Republican National Convention coming to Milwaukee, which is fascinating. Uh, and do you think are you, you're speculating whether or not Donald Trump is going to be one of the speakers, right? I mean, he almost has to be. Yeah. Well, of course, and I, I think you know he's he's I, I, he's the front runner uh, in in the race right now. I think, and I think you know the most likely outcome is he's going to be the Republican nominee giving that speech in Milwaukee next year. Uh, you know, but I you know I, there's obviously no guarantees. People are all uh, very skeptical of, of Trump's chances this time around. But then again, it feels kind of very 2015, 2016 <laughs> along those lines. It seems like. You know the the Republican, uh, uh, you know, kind of base front runner uh, uh, will stick with Trump. The, he has an unmovable base that is going to support him no matter what. So I think it is pretty likely uh, that he is going to be the front runner. And then we see, you know, folks like Ron DeSantis uh, from Florida, you know, take a name at higher education. You know, I think there's a lot of people who have compared DeSantis to. Uh, former Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker. You know, Scott Walker came out as a big favorite of Republican elites in the early 2010s for what he did taking on, you know, going after higher education, going after uh, public education uh, in the state of Wisconsin. And, uh, you know, he obviously did not do particularly well in that primary uh, and then ended up losing the race for re- using losing his reelection bid in 2018. So I think I think there are some comparisons to be made between DeSantis and Walker. Yeah, I, I oh, my God. Well, I mean, was Walker pushing for the kind of control over education the way DeSantis is? I mean, he, he you know, it, it was a different a different type of control um controlled yeah and his was really directed at the public sector union right yeah, it was I remember. Really an anti-union push from walker uh and and desantis obviously you know it's kind of a 2010s tea party version of uh of what scott walker was doing and now in 2020s you know kind of anti-crt whatever yeah. school board craziness yeah. <laughs> that uh, the right is cooking up uh, in this decade. So I think I think there are some comparisons to be made between the two. 
Absolutely. Yeah, I, we just played a clip. I don't know if you saw Marjorie Trader Green uh, in committee uh, asking someone in regards to COVID spending if he knew that the money was being spent on CRT and, and the uh, person, the individual that was at the, that was testifying was like, I'm, so, I'm sorry, what CRT? He, you know, it wasn't what he was expecting to be asked in a in a in a committee meeting about COVID, uh, you know, support and things like that. And she went on to talk about how CRT is to, isn't designed to make white children feel bad about their skin, that they're not equal to black kids. And I mean, this is going to be the next two years. And presumably she's going to be someone's VP nominee, don't you think? Whether it's DeSantis or I mean, it seems like she's all in on Trump. Uh, so I can't. This is what we're looking ahead to. I, I think, you know, whether it's her or not, I think that's going to be a big theme from the Republican Party over the next year. You know, as the presidential primaries kind of kick into gear, they're, you know, going to be tripping all over each other to try to address these, you know, these very uh, divisive issues. And, and I should uh, I should mention that I'm writing a piece for Heartland Signal right now about, uh, you know, kind of a case that's unfolded in the state of Wisconsin where uh, in the, the town of Keele, uh, which is about a 4,000-person town uh, in Wisconsin, they had uh, a conservative group kind of ignited this anti-trans panic uh, they had a school board that got flipped by a lot of these anti-DRT uh, people who had problems with schools teaching about racial equity and, and LGBT rights. Uh, and and, I, and it's a very conservative part of the state, but a lot of their citizens stood up in a recent meeting to support their superintendent uh, and go against these far-right school board members, wow. which I think is really telling. Uh, yeah. You know, like once this becomes very real for people, once these culture war things enter into these communities and and flip things in a in a very real way you know people in a, even in very conservative communities like in you know in Keele and it's semi rural Wisconsin they're pushing back and, and I think it's a really interesting uh an interesting case study of of kind of what uh what these culture war panics when they become real for towns uh, what what can really become of them in, in the political sense? Yeah, that's 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 great to point out. And I uh, before I let you go, um, I do want to ask you: Are there any uh, towns in Wisconsin that don't have a letter E in them? <laughs> Why does this pop up every once in a while? The Wisconsin Challenge: Name a city in Wisconsin without an E in it. How is that? And there, and there are there are thousands. So many cities don't have an E in it. It's just an obvious joke to get people to <laughs> to get people to say, "Well, oh, well, you're so stupid. Why why would you not recognize? I don't know Madison or whatever." Right, like, Milwaukee. It's right. Just obviously, a, a very trolling thing that uh, some some folks on Milwaukee Twitter uh, always seem to bring up, and it seems to fool people every single time. It's, it's incredible. It, it, and I do love the responses. Uh, I don't know. I, you know, Lodi, I, I would go with Lodi as well. I, that would be my first one that came to mind because I spent a lot of my uh, childhood in Lodi. Uh, it's always great to, t- to catch up with you, Dan. Dan Schaefer, the publisher of the Recombobulation Area. Follow him on Twitter. That's Dan Schaefer, the easiest way to spell it. I actually have it. My next guest is Eric Schaefer with like, there's a C, there's an E, there's two Fs, there's two E's Actually, it's a lot. It's a lot going on in his name is all I'm saying. Well, I uh, in solidarity with Mr. Schaefer. We both have our last name spelled incorrectly <laughs> all the time, I'm sure. <laughs> we look forward to talking to you next week if you're available. Sound good? 
Absolutely. All right. My, my, uh, my, really always my pleasure to talk to you, and uh, we look forward to catching up with you as we get closer and closer to the Supreme Court race in Wisconsin. Obviously, a lot else. We should probably talk to you at some point about other other municipality races that might be important. But this is the, uh, I think, the biggest headline is uh, really preserving democracy in Wisconsin. We need to help uh, help with our borders. You've got you got Minnesota to the to the west of you, just enshrined abortion rights. We're doing pretty well, and then uh, there's Wisconsin. I'm just saying, Dan, let's get this done. Hey, we we got a we got a real opportunity in front of us. Yes, got to get it done. One hundred percent. Thanks so much. Have a great rest of your week. We'll talk to you next week. You too. Thanks. Thanks, my friend. Let's take a break here. We'll come back. We are going to talk to our friend Eric Schaefer uh, to talk about the EPA enforcement and how it has declined under the Biden administration. Not because of Biden, I don't think. Maybe he'll tell us, but uh, why we should pay attention and uh, and try to do something about it. More in a moment on WCPT eight twenty Heartland Signal. Thanks for hanging out with us. And thank you to our sponsors, Kids Above All, European and U.S. Car Service, and Monaco Brewing. Go to the Patty Vasquez Show page to learn more about where you can pick up Progressive Brew in the Chicagoland area. Hey, where's Hal Sparks? I'm not sure where he is now, but I know where you can find him Saturdays at 11. It'll be right here on WCPT 820 for the Hal Sparks Radio Program, Mega Worldwide. You're listening to WCPT 820, because facts matter. Hi, this is Kirk Bankstead from the Manaqua Brewing Company, and I sell Choice Hard Seltzer, an all-natural grapefruit-flavored booze that you can enjoy for only 100 calories a can. A percentage of the proceeds of every can of Choice Hard Seltzer you buy goes to reproductive rights organizations in the Chicagoland area. Enjoy a light, refreshing hard seltzer this summer and support reproductive freedom at the same time. Now available at Dino's Cardinal Liquors in Gurney, Illinois, and Sugar Beet Food Co-op in Oak Park, as well as in Chicago at Jarvis Square Tavern, Rogers Park, and Garfield's Beverage Express Wicker Park. Please drink responsibly. You're listening to Driving It Home with Patty Vasquez on WCPT 820. We are going to get our friend Eric Schaefer on the line in just a moment. I want to take Dave uh, Dave's phone call. He's been on hold for just a few minutes. Hey, I apologize that we couldn't get to you until now. Dave, how are you doing today? Fine. You don't apologize. <laughs> on, uh, on the string on uh, about the uh, Supreme Court, did you happen to catch the story about where uh, former uh, the wife of uh, Chief Justice John Roberts' uh, wife is a, a complaint been filed? That uh, she, you know, with influence peddling and and conflicts of interest in that, and that it was first obtained by the New York Times, accuses the Chief Justice of failing to acknowledge the full extent of his wife's work and his ethical disclosures. She had, you know, quit her job as a law partner when her husband was confirmed as Chief Justice, made millions in commissions helping recruit for firms, some of which had business before the Supreme Court, according to a letter. You know, first you had Ginny Thomas, you know, of course, they didn't talk shop at all when they were in bed. And now you got this lady, you know, with uh, John Roberts, you know, the chief justice. It's like, geez. 
Yeah, that's uh, uh, for, I, I had not heard this story. I was just Googling it right now as you were uh, telling me about that, that there's a ethics uh, claim by a former colleague, right, of uh, Chief Justice Roberts. And we've talked a lot about Ginny Thomas and her questionable activities uh, that she that Justice Thomas says, uh, you know, we have a separate uh, conversation. We don't talk about those things. And I, I call BS. I, I call BS because, you know, the lawyer that she had uh, walking her through those committee hearings uh, is best friends with both of them. He's the godfather. Uh, Thomas is the godfather, and I believe she's the godmother of uh, one of his children. Um, so it's all hand in hand. There is no separation of Supreme Court and uh, the, the future of our country, honestly. I, I just think that there's a lot going on there. And, and they're, they're ironclad in their ability to just you know do whatever they want, apparently. Yeah, apparently. I yeah. mean, it's like they're not recusing themselves. Nope. Know? For like this conflict of interest and stuff like that. Yep, I've, I've got to run. I've got to run to my guest, uh, Dave. Thank you so much for hanging on there and, and letting right, me know about the story. Out of interest. I'll, yeah, it is interesting. Yeah. I, I will read up on that. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right, be well. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, joining us right now, we want to talk to Eric Schaefer. This is something I was not familiar with. And, you know, so many of us talk about our environment and uh, how much we really need to work uh, to protect our future, to work on uh, climate change, whether it is uh, slowing the rate of uh, how much things change in our environment, what we can do to help, but also uh, what we can do to uh, hold uh, big corporations accountable for what their contribution is to our environment. We're talking to Eric Schaefer. He's the executive director of the Environmental Environmental Integrity. Hi, Eric. How are you doing today? Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Tell folks a little bit about your background uh, in the Environmental Protection Agency and uh, civil enforcement. I, I worked for the U.S. EPA for 12 years and spent most of that time working in the enforcement program, ending by um, being the um, director of the Office of Civil Enforcement, and we're talking about now enforcing the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, and other federal laws that protect the environment. And we often think of, you know, look, the, the environment is not political, except that it's been politicized. There's a, those are two different things, right? What is happening, uh, you know, measurably by scientific investigation and, you know, by quantifiable information, it, it shouldn't be politicized. And yet here we are having these conversations. Uh, you know, what, what have you learned throughout your, first of all, let me just say, I wanted to be either a civil rights attorney or an environmental attorney. I, uh, I did some Science project about acid rain back in the 80s. And this was something I w- I've been interested in since I was a kid. So I love that this is the work that you do. And I want to thank you for your service. Uh, so, Well, thanks so much for, for talking about it. I, we really appreciate that. You're, you're putting the important issues on the air. Well, so what can we do? I mean, so tell us a little bit about what's happening. Why has the enforcement of EPA protocol diminished as its lowest in decades under the Biden administration? So we've seen that decline build for about 10 years, really. It started in the second half of the Obama administration. And uh, that's that's very much because the Republicans in charge then started attacking EPA's budget and cutting it. That, of course, continued under Trump. And we saw, I think, some uh, Democrats in in the first couple of years after they took Congress, not really paying attention to what was happening. And the result is that the EPA enforcement program has lost 
about a third of its staff, more than a thousand people in the last decade. And not surprisingly, the number of inspections and enforcement actions have declined uh, by a lot. And that's so tell folks what it means to enforce EPA, it, it, like this enforcement of what regulations are. I mean, you know, we kind of there's so much, for the most part, I would say conservatives are like, well, that just makes it hard for big companies to do their business and be profitable and, and create jobs. I mean, that seems to be the argument, right? Well, that, that is an argument. Um, another argument is, oh, let the states do it. The federal government doesn't need to be involved. And I can touch on both those things. Yes. You, Generally, when you look at poll results, people want environmental laws enforced, Republicans and Democrats. When you look at the issue of cost, there were a series of studies coming out of the Labor Department that reported every year on the reasons why businesses had to do layoffs at at their operations. And environmental regulations, just they weren't even an asterisk as, as the cause of that kind of job cutting and um, you know, manufacturing loss. So uh, that is greatly exaggerated and it's manipulated by uh, polluters who basically don't want to pay. Enforcement itself is is popular, but it's one of those things that you don't think about. I think you, you just assume when the law is passed that there are people out there trying to enforce. You need uh, engineers and scientists to monitor compliance, to go out and do the inspections, criminal agents to go after the deliberate violators. The, you know, people who are doing it on purpose. One of the worst examples was Volkswagen doctoring the engines on its motor vehicles it was selling to, in, in a way that turned off the emission controls to, to save a little money. And they, they got in big trouble for that and should have. You need people to do that. And then, of course, you need the ability once you find violators to haul them into court, really what happens most of the time is EPA will present the evidence and end up with a settlement that requires a polluter to you know, clean up their act and, and pay their penalties. And if you don't have that, if you don't have enforcement, you don't really have law. Oh, I, I would agree 100%. And, and I know that uh, you, one of the quotes that I, I've seen in this uh, press release is from you, the dec- this, this decline in environmental enforcement is dangerous because it puts the health of downwind communities at risk from sometimes deadly pollution. And that's really what it comes down to. You know, we talk a little bit about environmental justice. You know, there are a lot of communities that uh, are disproportionately affected by pollution. But what do you mean by downwind communities? I mean people who live uh, very close to large air pollution sources, and the pollution from those sources, those plants, blow downwind into those communities. And I'm really glad you brought up environmental justice because that's absolutely a priority of the Biden administration. I believe them when they say that. They are um, spending money, getting grants out to low-income communities to help monitor air pollution, and that's great. But those communities in particular need enforcement more than more than ever and really more than uh, maybe more than other communities that have the resources, hire their own lawyers and raise their voices and complain and have political influence. If you're talking about lower-income neighborhoods, people of color, that get ignored, frankly, by the political system, you 
laws, just like you need the Justice Department to enforce civil rights laws that protect the same communities. And when we talk about these uh, these civil cases and the decisions that are made, the fines that are, are uh, levied against corporations that, that are found to have violated these uh, le- this legislation, is that money used for cleanup and for enhancing protections for communities that are downwind? There, there are a couple of, of pieces to enforcement. The first is the money that's spent to clean up the sources of pollution. So let's say the uh, the company was supposed to have put a scrubber on to take sulfur dioxide out of the air, a really noxious pollutant. Or they have a wastewater treatment plant that it just isn't working well and uh, spits a lot of uh, crud out into local water. So the enforcement action has to get those problems fixed. And you're spending money to fix those problems benefits the local community. So that's one way to help. Another is sometimes the agency will negotiate a deal that requires the companies who have been caught in the act to put up some money for environmental projects that can help to protect local communities from the same kinds of problems. We negotiated one of those settlements filing a citizen suit, not as EPA, but as a a citizen suit uh, attorneys on behalf of uh, communities around the BP Whiting plant. And as part of the settlement of that case, BP had to put money into local school systems to get indoor air filters set up, which can do a lot for children and who otherwise are breathing uh, some nasty air sometimes. And that's the sort of thing you can wrangle out of polluters when you do enforcement. So, and, and we know the Biden administration wants that and wants right. to do that. But if, if you don't have the uh, enforcement leverage, you're not going to get it. It's, it's not going to happen. So why did Congress fail to confirm Biden's pick for the administrator of the I mean, I, I mean, I guess there could be a thousand reasons. Do you have any speculation as to why they did not I, confirm? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I think, you know, there's probably one big reason, which is our politics are broken. We've got uh, the Republicans and I, I work for some great Republicans. I don't want to make this partisan. I'm sure. just talking about the crew that's in power now just not wanting to approve any of Biden's nominees, it's a way for them to kind of um, get some leverage over the administration and try to squeeze out of the White House concessions they want on legislation. And, you know, it's a sort of a form of blackmail. And, you know, some of that log rolling goes on in politics, and we're all used to that. But this idea of holding up qualified people who are coming into public service willing to put their time in, and in many cases to work for less money than they otherwise were making in the private sector, just to put them on hold when there really is no reason that person should be kept out of government. There's no scandal. There's no question about their qualifications. The nominees that got put forward by President Biden for enforcement, but also for the Office of Solid Waste, for the Office of Air and Radiation are all stuck, not because they don't have lots of support. This guy for enforcement has former Republican political appointees that he worked for in the past writing in to 
say this guy's a straight shooter and he should be confirmed. Mm. There's no controversy. They're just, you know, frankly, it's a kind of meanness that has gotten into our politics. That's really disappointing. I don't know what you mean. What do you <laughs> teasing? Uh, and look, I appreciate your point about uh, this is not this is not not partisan necessarily, or should not be. And it was actually the EPA was created under President Nixon. Uh, and from what I'm reading, it was in response to the uh, confusing, often ineffective environmental product protection laws uh, that was you know basically sort of uh, you know from state to state and community to community. So this was a way to have an umbrella. And now it's sort of under Trump was relegated back to a lot of states that are don't have the funding for this. Is that right? They don't have the funding. They sometimes don't have the uh, technical depth. And I mean, no disrespect to state agencies who do a lot of excellent work. But if you're trying to figure out, let's say, what is the optimal, the best wastewater treatment technology to require, a, well, any plant, but let's say a violator to install, that's information that, you know, comes from looking at the problem nationally and hiring people who are studying the industry day and night. And states just, they don't have a lot of that in-house. And then the last thing, and I, you know, I hate to say this, but there are polluters that enjoy a certain level of political protection. You, you won't see Ohio, for example, sue a coal plant for big Clean Air Act violations. Right. It's just not, not going to happen. I think Illinois, to be honest, is, is better at, at that. Um, I, I also want to squeeze in uh, Senator Durbin, your home state senator, has been pushing for more resources for EPA enforcement for the last couple of years. And finally, this year, we saw the first real increase in those resources, enough funding to start to bring people back than I've seen in more than a decade. So there's a little bit of light on the horizon. And uh, it's not enough to take EPA all the way back to where it was, but it's at least a start. Is there anything that folks can do? What can Americans do to, uh, you know, do you call your legislators? Call, you know. I do. Yes. Okay, go ahead. I, I could just write there. I can say, I, I know it's hard. I know people are busy. and uh, They get tired at night. And I know how I feel at the end of a work day. But there's no substitute for letting elected officials know that you want your environmental laws enforced and you want EPA to have the capacity to do that. There's no substitute for that. And I know that you, again, I want to come back to uh, just before we go, uh, I know that it's not, it's not partisan, and I mentioned at the beginning that it's been made that way. I think that there, that believing that our water should be clean, that we should be comfortable breathing fresh air, is a freedom, and that should be nonpartisan. So I, I'm curious, uh, what led you on this path to environmental law? I got interested when I worked on the Hill. I was a legislative aide, and you, you see some really big problems that are interesting Technically, you know, there's sort of puzzles to try to figure out how can we make things better. And you, you develop a passion for it because you can see, you can see if, you're, if you're successful that you can make a difference. You can uh, have an enforcement action, for example, and go after uh, power plants, as EPA has done. And they have managed to wrangle huge reductions in sulfur dioxide, you know, 
pollutants that uh, contribute to smog, like nitrogen oxide. So you, you can, you know, you can mark victories and see things move forward. It's incremental. It takes a long time. It can be grinding, but in the end, it's. I think it's rewarding, and I think you know, in general, I think the public may want cleaner air, may want cleaner water. So, being able to roll your sleeves up and make a contribution, I guess that's. Yeah, it sounds kind of naive, maybe, but that's. <laughs> I hear you. Uh, whenever uh, you know, folks ask me, ask me why I got involved in advocating and and working in, in government. Uh, it's the same thing. I mean, like I, I I wake up every day thinking I can help make things better for folks. And uh, so again, I want to thank you for uh, the work that you've done and continue to do. Again, we've been talking to Eric Schaefer. And how can people learn more about the work that you guys do? If you go to our uh, long winded sounding website, environmentalintegrity.org. Uh, pop that open, go to the news release section, and you can scroll down and see our, our reports. And the second one uh, on the list is about the state of enforcement. Okay. Again, it's the Environmental Integrity Project. The website is environmentalintegrity.org. We've been talking to Eric Schaefer, and we look forward to having you back, my friend, uh, and finding out more about if there's any progress or what we can do or continue to, to ring the alarm bell in the, on this issue. Thank you so much for inviting me and having me on. Absolutely. Anytime you reach out, uh, tell Steve that uh, you're welcome anytime. We'd love to continue this conversation with you. Will do. Thanks again. Absolutely. Be well. Take care, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Let's take a break here. We'll uh, wind down this hour, and uh, coming up in just a little bit, we're going to talk to some folks who want to get your kids in the kitchen. I mean, like not like in a... You know, 1950s, wear an apron if you're a woman, and high heels and pearls and stuff like that. I mean, like, you know, learn what it means to make food for yourself and for others and learn the joy of, uh, of nourishing yourself and others. More in a moment on WCPT 820. We're going to talk to Schoolhouse Kitchen in just a little bit. Chicago's Progressive Talk, WCPT 820, where facts matter. Have you written your letters yet? While we were having that conversation with Eric Schaefer, you should be writing your letters, your emails, reach out to your legislators and let them know that you want uh, more to be done when it comes to EPA enforcement, going after the folks who are making our water and air unsafe. Coming up in just a moment, we're going to talk to our friend Cheryl from Schoolhouse Kitchen and uh, find out how you can get your kids involved in cooking and baking and doing all the fun stuff. Man, when I was a kid, you know my favorite thing? You know, I'll talk about this when we come back after this break. This is WCPT 820. Listen in Chicago on 820 AM or stream us live on WCPT820.com. The TuneIn Radio app or tell Alexa or Google to play WCPT. Because facts matter. You're listening to WCPT 820. You're listening to Driving It Home with Patty Vasquez on WCPT 820. Being a a small business owner is no small feat, and every time I hear that there's a new uh, a new space that's being occupied by a great business, a great idea, I want to know more. Cheryl is opening the schoolhouse, has opened Schoolhouse Kitchen in Portage Park on Milwaukee Avenue, over by there, right by Montrose. Uh, right? It's Montrose? Yeah. Yes. Come on a little bit closer to your microphone. Okay. Come join us. Sure, sure. So tell, first of all, hi, Cheryl. Welcome hi. to the show. Hi. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Absolutely. Our pleasure. So tell us, so where, where did you grow up? 
Oh, I grew up in northern Kentucky. Really? So, yeah, just south of Cincinnati. Okay. Yeah. What brought you to Chicago? So I studied painting. I have a BFA in painting mm-hmm. and um, wanted to, you know, just explore a big city and see what Chicago is like and, and you know, learn more about what art the art scene here was. So I packed up my little Honda Civic and all my stuff in it. And at 21 years old, I moved to Chicago and I... Landed in like the Ukrainian village neighborhood. Sure. So yeah. And what did you think upon arriving to oh, Chicago? Wow. I yeah. just thought it was awesome. I thought like even getting on the CTA was mm-hmm. super fun. Like okay. I thought that was awesome. <laughs> just so much fun. <laughs> it's a little less fun only because it's inconsistent right now. Oh, I loved it. Um, yeah. You know, just everything was so exciting, and I met so many amazing people doing all kinds of fun stuff, and took classes at the Art Institute, took classes like wherever they offered art classes, and. Um, really learned a lot. Yeah. And um, well, a lot of people who come from, look, you either fall in love with the city. Yeah. You're a city person and, and you may not even know it. Yeah. Uh, and some people just are. Yeah. Uh, and some people just hate it. I had an ex-boyfriend. Uh, let's call him Derek because that's his name. He uh, <laughs> he wanted to move to Chicago to continue our relationship. And I was yeah. like, oh, I don't think I, I mean, I didn't mean to be mean to him. Like, you are not a city person. And years later, he wrote me a letter thanking me oh, nice. for not letting him come to Chicago because he ended up he runs the park districts in Champaign-Urbana. Yeah. Uh, went and had fun in Colorado and I just knew that he wasn't right for this the city but I always love hearing that people fall in love with my city oh I loved it so much like I just I don't know I need a lot of input like I've mm-hmm. always been that way like I just need a lot of stuff and I I create a lot of stuff so it's like input output input output and I think the city really offered that to me lots of just sensory things. So, so, so you came to Chicago and explored the art, artistic part that, that you wanted mm-hmm. to. And, and this is a great. I mean, th- a lot of uh, folks in Hollywood, New York, when they find out they have an actor that's come from Chicago, they know they're going to get someone who puts in the work. And yeah. that's, that's what we're known for is like yeah. working artists. OK. Yeah. Yeah. Is, oh, I was working really hard. Yeah. So I um, worked on my art practice mm-hmm. all day long. And um, and then at night I worked in restaurants because uh, my Second love has always been food. Like, I've always loved cooking and exploring food. And um, I remember when I was little, I'd go to the library and couldn't decide which cooking, like, cookbooks to put back. So I would lug so many of them home that I had to, like, take a rest. Sorry about this. Oh, it's okay. (laughs) That's embarrassing. Sorry. Apparently my friends forget that I have a radio show. Uh, By the way, Representative Stephanie Kifowit forgot that I have a show right now, Lady uh, B. uh That's one of our legislators. Anyway. Call back later. So you would lug all these books home from the library. I just loved it. I loved the idea of, like, traveling and, um, I don't know. I lived in this tiny little suburb of Cincinnati on the Kentucky side, and Really, I thought the whole wide world was out there, and it was definitely you know, available through these recipes and through these cookbooks that, yeah, I would drag home well, in a bag, like well, a grocery bag. Well, first, I, just because <laughs> I've, I've driven, I think, it is, is there, I don't know if it's a, the Kentucky side going to Cincinnati, there's a, a road where you just come over this hill, and like Cincinnati's like, it looks like this paradise. Oh, yeah. It's Stunning. It's I had, beautiful. I had no idea. Yeah. So the um, Ohio River Valley is really gorgeous. Yeah. And, um, yeah. Gorgeous. Especially like in the fall. It's just like, a, I don't know, the leaves, the trees. Um, there's just a quality about that area that's really beautiful. I do miss it sometimes. I, I still, my mom is there and my sister's there. So I still make it back a couple times a year, but it's really pretty there. So in these books that you would lug home, were there any favorites? Were you drawn to like Asian food or home yeah, cooking or Mexican definitely. food? 
also like French food. I don't Ooh. know why I thought that was so exciting. Maybe it's just the, like, the romanticism of Paris or something. I thought, oh, for sure, I'm going to be in Paris one day. Um, and then I love the books of Pearl Buck. Do you remember The I Good do Earth? Remember, I do. Yeah. So yeah. she wrote a lot of books. She has an interesting story. When I was a kid, I read almost all of the Pearl Buck books. Um, and they were all about like these, um, like these little family stories in China, like rural China. But mm-hmm. a lot of it was about food and about how they made their homes. And I was fascinated. I was like, I'm definitely going to China one day. That's where I belong. Wow. See, and I love, I'm trying to remember books that like had food. Like, I remember just like the weirdest things from Little House on the Prairie. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, some of the food they had. But also, like, one of my favorite books when I was in college was Fried Green Tomatoes. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. So I, amazing. I, I mean, any any restaurant that has fried green tomatoes on their menu, I'm in. Same. I'm a sucker for it. Me too. I can't. It's, get it's a good litmus test for a chef. It like, is. Yeah. yeah. If they can do that, they're they're a pretty good cook. Do you do you prefer flour or cornmeal on your fried green tomatoes? Huh. It's tough because the cornmeal. I like the is, cornmeal. Me too. I, I would say I would say the cornmeal really has that texture I'm looking for. Mm-hmm. Um, I also like a fried green tomato sandwich. Uh-huh. That's one of my favorites. Yeah. Lots of mayo. Mm. I'm a fan. I know you and I are like, do you get hungry? Let's go. Let's go now. <laughs> Let's go right now. There's a, by the way, I mean, there are, it's funny. I was just talking about this the other day that, uh, you know, every neighborhood sort of has their foods. The, the Northwest side has a lot of meat. Yeah. We are, sure. although we have um, Amitable, which is mm-hmm. a, a vegan Korean restaurant right down on Milwaukee Avenue, which is so surprising in this community. Yeah. But he is not messing around with his food. I love it, that place. Yeah. I haven't been there in years. It's so good. I haven't what, been. I haven't been there in a while. Either. What did they have? They had like it was almost called Doctor. I remember. Oh, he's got like a, a soup for like colds and yeah. flus and things like that. I oh, remember yeah. someone taking me there like probably fifteen years ago, and they're like, "Oh, you're not feeling well. You need to have this soup." Yeah. But, was like his medicine soup mm-hmm. almost. I was like, okay, I'm in. There's something remarkable about having a super dog about three blocks <laughs> from one of the best vegan restaurants in right. the city of Chicago. Mm. You're like, by the way, I mean, I'm pretty sure I have a super dog in my DNA. Yeah. Those poppy seed buns with the French fries shoved in there and the, and the green tomato. We're back to green to, pickled green tomatoes. Yeah. I think there's medicinal qualities in that. I, I think I think, I think so. it's a healing and, hot dog. And, and, and the, the Polish whoopski dog. <laughs> and I was, I was thinking about this. So when I knew you were coming in and this is so we're talking to Cheryl who's opening up who's opened up Schoolhouse Kitchen on Milwaukee Avenue near Montrose what's the exact address over there it's 4410 North Milwaukee 4410 North Milwaukee I was trying to think about what I when I was a kid because I was a latchkey kid so I grew up in the 70s yeah both my parents were working and I would we had a flame broiler like a real flame broiler wow and I but but I was very fancy with like making I remember like rolling like white bread over like like sandwich like putting a toothpick I learned something on television like cook there I, I I just vaguely remember there being cooking shows for kids on PBS okay in Chicago I don't remember that in Chicago we, I think we okay. had that on channel 11 um, there was a lot more programming to, directed toward kids that wasn't like all cartoons and mm-hmm. and like funny sitcom stuff like there was there were things that were for those six seven eight year olds too oh. because we were home alone that's awesome I, and uh, and and so I I had to cook a lot for myself mm-hmm. when I was a kid I learned how to make like pork chops and fried chicken and and things like that. So when did, so you brought all these cookbooks home. When did you, like, were you cooking for the whole family? Were you um, experimenting? Sometimes. So um, my mom still works um, night shift as a nurse. Mm. I know. She's amazing. Um, and so... 
there were times where she, you know, she would need to sleep, right? So she would get home at like 730 in the morning and try to sleep, you know, as much as she could. So sometimes I'd come home and there'd be a note um, with like maybe some cans of, you know, chicken soup and chicken and rice soup and a bag of potatoes and pork chops that had been defrosting on the counter all day. <laughs> so it was my job. And I love doing this, right? So this like really tapped into me wanting to be independent and, and learning all these skills. Like I was to put all of this in a Pyrex dish. So you put the pork chops, pour the soup over, sure. put a, like mm-hmm. a potato for each person. So five potatoes go in and you wrap that sucker in foil and put it in a 350 degree oven for like an hour. So that's dinner. And yeah. so that maybe let her sleep another hour or so. Yeah. So it wasn't every night that I did that, but I do remember cooking for... Um, cooking for them sometimes and, and my dad being really generous, like with, oh, yeah, this is really good. And, uh, you know, and I'm sure it was different or maybe like I made meatloaf once, like, you know, and it was very different. <laughs> is that exciting, though? Like get your yeah. hands in there with the yes. ground beef? Or the oh, onions? I wrapped it in ham. Oh, you I'm know? sorry. What? It was a meatloaf wrapped in ham. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure it comes straight from the Betty Crocker cookbook because mm-hmm. that's really the only one we had Yeah. Um, other than the millions of cookbooks I drag home from the library but did you ever go through like the vintage I mean, we like I know that some folks who's on TV on WGN TV they'll show those uh, vintage cookbooks where like everything was in jello was yeah. jello. oh my god yeah what was happening I don't know there there's a guy I, there's a guy on TikTok who does these recipes from like a hundred years ago sure. have you seen this guy no not this guy oh my god I'll just send you a link to it because okay. I'm fascinated like sometimes and, and he's great like he'll say whether or not it works or not okay you know just the most ridiculous uh, recipes, even one going all the way back to the Civil War. Wow! So like, he's like making hardtack. Yeah, exactly. What he, thank you. I couldn't. Put, I couldn't remember. He made hardtack. I'm sure it was delicious. And, and right? like Depression era food, yeah. and like and one was like potato cake. Mm. Like all these different ways uh, that people just like put things together, and sometimes it's a disaster. And he's he's honest about it. Yeah. But my favorites are when he's just so delightfully surprised. Right. Isn't that the greatest thing when, right. you, when you're like, oh, I did this, like hot dogs and ass or something exactly. like floating yeah, and why? <laughs> why did they do these things i don't know well they were trying to be inventive i think with a whole new um brand of foods right mm-hmm. that was so exotic and cool and like very jetsony right so we had these all these new boxes of things i think in the 50s and 60s that were yeah. supposed to save time sure and they had all these like you know food dyes and additives so they were all very beautiful <sighs> compared to you know, the potato and the pork chop and the rice, you know? Right. So it was all very colorful. Well, you got to have your salt and starch and your and your pork. It's nourishing. It is. It, it gets the job done. It does get the job done. Yes. So let's talk. <laughs> when we come back, we're going to take a break here. We're talking to Cheryl. What's your last name? I just don't have Connect. it. Connect. Connect. Yeah. Cheryl Connect. I love that. Cheryl Connect, from, who is opening, has opened the schoolhouse kitchen at, uh, you told me, 4411 North 4410. Oh, one across the street. Yeah. 4410 North Milwaukee Avenue. Let's find out. Oh, how, what's What's your website so folks can take a look while we're talking? I love schoolhouse.com. I love schoolhouse.com. Let's find out how your kids can get involved or if you have children in your life that you think would benefit. And they will. They all would from taking cooking classes at Schoolhouse Kitchen. More in a moment on WCPT 820 Heartland Signal. WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk where facts matter. 
Can't call into the show? Now you can text Patty at the same number you use to call us. 773-763-9278. Thanks to our texting sponsor, Camp Kupugani. Register today at multiculturalcamp.com. 773-763-9278. You're listening to Driving It Home with Patty Baskin on WCPT 820. <laughs> oh, yes. I thought we are hanging out with our friend Cheryl Connect, the founder of Schoolhouse Kitchen. She has a location in River Forest. Is that where the other one is? Yeah. Excellent. The first one's in River Forest. Okay, so let's get to this. So, okay. So you uh, come to Chicago as an artist. Mm-hmm. You're working as uh, as, a, as an artist, painting and, and mm-hmm. developing your craft. Yes. And then working in restaurants. What restaurants were you working so, at? So I am... Um <clears throat> My first job was at Nasty Nell 27, which is a Let Us <gasps> Entertain on. You place. I know. Well, because before it was Nasty Nell 27, it was Hat Dance, which oh. was ridiculous. Okay. I liked Nasty Nell 27. It was fine. Yeah. It was, Hat Dance was a uh, Asian-Mexican fusion restaurant. Oh, okay. And the interior was dazzling. It was that like was... Art Deco. It was It was also a Let Us Entertain You. Yeah. Same location. Beautiful location. So yes. it was really a pleasure to work there. Um the chef was awesome. I learned a lot about food and I learned a lot about like service. Like mm-hmm. Let Us Entertain You was a really good company to work for and learn from. I'm a fan. So yeah, I know. It was fun. Um and then I went on to work at somewhere in my neighborhood. I, I thought that would be fun. Like sure. to work at a restaurant in my new neighborhood at Damon and Division. So I worked at Marai Sushi, mm. which is still there. Yeah. I'm putting a plug, 2020 West Division. Worked there for almost three years, okay. which is kind of unheard of. I don't know. I just was flitting about for so many years, but I've, I kind of found a home there and um, was so close to my place and had a lot of good friends there. And I absolutely love the chef there, too. So I learned a lot about wine from the wine um, list there. It was beautiful and was invited to do some tastings. And I started to really become interested in wine. So the more I became interested in food and wine, maybe the less time I had for art. And I really started skewing towards the wine aspect and um, left Marai to go work at Sam's Wines and Spirits. Mm-hmm. Do you remember the one in Lincoln Park? Sure. The big one? Uh-huh. So I worked at Sam's in the French wine department and became um, a sommelier. Oh. So I took the the first level um, sommelier exam and kind of just kept studying um, wine and all of this agriculture stuff was so exciting to me. It's like not a straight path, right? My I career, love your path. My career has not been straight at all, but it's always been about, okay, this is interesting to me. This is so cool. Like, I want to learn more about this, and I'm going to find a job where I can do that all day. But so, that's what life should be, right? So we get too. locked into what we majored in in college <laughs> yeah. or what, we, what we're doing, what has, and unfortunately, part of it is that our health insurance is tied to something or our retirement sure. is tied into something. Yeah. But to live, to me, it's it, like... You asked what I do, yeah. and I told you the range of things. Yeah. I, I just became a policy advisor three years ago because I was advocating in Springfield for other things, and I was mm-hmm. like, how do I do this more? Yeah. And uh, and But I want to come back to uh, the, your uh, your path as a sommelier. Uh, you may have just talked yourself into being a regular guest once in a while. Oh, okay. In particular, one of my favorite <laughs> segments I've ever done in my life, and it was in homage to a good friend of mine. Her name was Christine Bloomer. She was the wine diva on WGN Radio. 
radio. Okay. And uh, and she would do wine pairings with Halloween candy oh, on the Steve fun. Cochran show. And it was one of my favorite things. And I had a friend come in uh, a few years ago. She passed away in 2010, I think. Mm-hmm. And uh, thank you. She She's one of those people where you feel bad for other people who didn't have the opportunity to meet her. I remember her. Do you really? Yeah, I met her. I'm sure I met her like when I worked in the industry. Yeah, yeah. she was bigger than She life. was around. She yeah. would buy wine from us at Sam's. Yeah, she yeah. was. And she would have like like parties and, oh, yeah. and just she wonderful. She was a big deal. Yeah, she was. And uh, and she, but she would do pairings. And I had a friend of mine. Why? So my friends owned uh, Knife and Tine on Lincoln Avenue. Okay. And it was it, it wasn't around for a long time, but another well, it was wonderful. Okay. But it was one of those streets that had a lot of construction on it. All uh, of a sudden, yeah. Uh, but we did a wine pairing uh, with Halloween, Halloween candy. candy. It's the best. Oh, how about Halloween or instead of Halloween candy, Girl Scout cookies and wine? Okay. So what what are you doing in a couple weeks? We are going to have to. Let's do uh, it. Yeah, we're going to let's get that on the books. Yeah, uh, because I mean, because wine. You know, look, I know that there's cheap wine you can have and just like to get a buzz on. Yeah, but for to sure. enjoy a wine, let yeah. folks know a little bit about like you know taking your time, right? Yeah, there's the enjoyment of it, and it's all about like what do you like? Yeah, like do we ever slow down and ask ourselves what we actually like? I think we get a lot of cues about what we're supposed to hate or what we're supposed to you know love. But I think even with my work now, I'm asking kids, like, do you really like that? Like that mouthful of sprinkles that you just ate? Like, slow down and ask yourself, was that enjoyable? <laughs> because I know I know you're supposed to do that as a child. You're supposed to eat a handful of sugar. But actually slow down and taste that. Did that taste good? You know. I love that your work as a small yay lends itself to working with kids. Oh, totally. Because, you're, you know, when slow you... Slow down. Right. When you're a small yay, you, you have you taken the smell, the oh, body everything. of it, uh, whether where you hold the glass from. Oh, it's so exciting. It's so... And I think more than the wine itself, I was so excited meeting the wine makers because they were farmers first and foremost they were so excited about the soil and the weather and the culture and um i really liked meeting them the most out of the whole thing like even if they were selling motor oil i i was just excited to meet these people who farmed in france and had the soil under their nails and were so excited about where they came from yeah well really cool i remember and i've been trying to do this lately i I went to a yoga retreat years and years ago where they talked about meditating Mm -hmm. over food thinking Mm -hmm. about the sun that this this spinach leaf grew in or the people that are working in this company that wherever your tofu is made or Mm -hmm. where the you know and then it becomes a little dicier when you talk about your meat. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little, I remember when my son was in kindergarten, he came running up to me. He was upset because his friend's uh, parents had him watch this little other boy. My son's name is Griffin. His friend Henry had watched this documentary on how animals were slaughtered. Oh, okay. And... Uh, Griffin was really upset. He's like, "Mommy, yeah. mommy, tell him the truth. How do how where do we get our burgers from?" Because I had told Griffin <laughs> that when a cow basically just tips over and dies, okay. the farmer goes and collects up. <laughs> so basically, you know, Griffin's eating like aged, you know, diseased, right? <laughs> because this kid was telling you about how they're electrocuted and shoved down a chute, and I was like, <gasps> "That's a little rough." But I couldn't argue. Yeah, I could. Yeah. I mean, like, I'm not gonna like. I called on it, and I was like, "Okay, but let's not talk about Santa, okay? Let's not." Yeah. <laughs> yes. I mean, come on, he's five. Understanding our food system is, you know, means we have to understand all of it. Sometimes I don't know about five year olds. I yeah. don't know if they need to know all the details, but uh, it was aggressive. It yeah, was, it was aggressive. Yeah. Um, 
let's see. Oh, she was one of the most amazing people. I grew up with her, and uh, she knew her line. Oh, I think she, they're talking about, oh, Scott. Oh, Scott, you knew Christina. Oh, Aww. I'm sorry. One of, my, <laughs> one of our, our uh, hosts here at, at WCPT. Aww. Oh, Scott, we'll talk sometime and tip one back. Uh, but I'm, I'm in studio right now with, uh, with Cheryl Connect. We're talking about uh, her new adventure with yeah. uh, Schoolhouse Kitchen. So, so you worked as a sommelier yeah. after three years at a wonderful sushi place in your neighborhood. Yeah. Uh, and so what led you, what was, was this next? Or what was it? What came in oh, between? Gosh. So it keeps going. Okay, the story goes. Uh, worked at Sam's Wines and Spirits. Mm-hmm. Then I went on to be the general manager at the Tasting Room, which is a wine bar over on Randolph. It's no longer there. Um, so kept learning about wine, and then um, then became an event planner. I thought I wanted a little bit of change and have have a different kind of. Job. I planned, That's a lot. That's I planned a- weddings for a oh, while. God. That was kind of a trip. <laughs> uh, I'm guessing some personalities involved. In yeah, that. a lot of personalities. Um, and then I met my kid's dad. So uh, at this point, I'm in, um, living in Pilsen. Okay. And I'm pregnant with my second child. So I have two kids. One's 15. Cedar is 15. And Wren is 12. And so pregnant with little Rennie. And I'm like, I think it's time to leave Pilsen. Like, I just... Sure. Yeah, I just needed... I needed to be able to like bike around and look at trees. And I loved so much about Pilsen, but I was ready for a new community. So Oak Park was it. It was really exciting. It's a um, great community. I love my block. My neighbors are the best people on on the planet. Like I've, I'm literally best friends with a woman who lives a few doors from me. So oh, that's great. It's just really, it, I landed in the best place. So, so I was a stay at home mom and what I found myself doing on a very small budget. Cause the deal was if I stayed home with the kids, I had no money, right? <laughs> like if I wasn't working, there was mm-hmm. not a lot of budget. It was like, let's go to the farmer's market and like learn what we can. Like let's like we started doing um, food rescue missions down at the Lincoln park farmer's market where we would go around with a little cart and we'd rescue food and then give it all to the chef. And he would take us back to his place and we would juice it and like, I don't know. We I'm were, sorry. I, what do you mean you would rescue food and give it so to So farmers at the end of their like shift at a farmer's market often don't want to take some things back with them. Right. It's, so, a, it's a little bruised or yeah, things are falling apart. It's just like yeah. we're not, we're not going to sell this and we don't want to drag it back with us on the truck. So there was this food rescue and uh, we got, I remember my, my little boy and my, you know, daughter um, strapped to me and we're running around the farmer's market and um, collecting food and taking it back to the chef's house. Yeah. Where he would then turn it into preserves or, and then he would then use that um, for another food relief mission he was running. It was super cool. I just started getting involved. Like I was just like, whoever will have me and my crazy little kids. And they were really welcoming. I mean, it was kind of unusual that a, uh, you know, a mom with her two kids was interested. I was surrounded by a lot of college students, you know. Sure. Um, but I was into it. And I'd go to the Jane Adams Hall House. They had all of these interesting talks about um, food justice and social justice. And, mm-hmm. and I learned, I was just learning so much. It was like a new chapter for me. I had learned about agriculture and wine and all of this like kind of high-end stuff. But again, what struck me was like how people, how laborers, how like my neighbors are impacted by the food world, by the food industry and how my kids are impacted by this. So I became more interested in, you know, the making of stuff. 
And, and getting kids engaged uh, yeah. is really now one of your new missions. Oh, right? yeah, totally. It's amazing. Yeah. We're going to take a break, and we're going to talk about that, how you launched this. And we're talking to Cheryl Connect. Uh, she's opened the Schoolhouse Kitchen, one in River Forest, and now in Portage Park at 4010. 4410. 4410. I'm going to get it right. 4410 <laughs> North Milwaukee Avenue, over by there at uh, Milwaukee and Montrose, yeah. right across the street from our good friends at Rep Chai, uh, which is where both of us get our merch from. I love yeah. that. Uh, we we love Marion and then our entire crew over there. Let's take a break here. We'll take a, we'll come back. And uh, Scott, uh, we do need to talk because uh, if you know her life, and maybe you know more than I do. So I mean, I'm, it sounds as though you do, but uh, she was really remarkable. So I love knowing we can connect about that, and I love connecting with Cheryl. Let's talk more when we come back on WCPT eight twenty Heartland Signal. Tired of all those talking heads down the dial who think they're always right? People need to just calm down. It's gotten ridiculous. Welcome to WCPT 820, where facts matter. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. This is WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk. Hi, this is Kirk Bankstead from the Minocqua Brewing Company, and I sell progressive beer like AOC IPA and Bernie Brew, a lovingly irascible Democratic Socialist lager. A percentage of the proceeds of every beer I sell goes to helping keep Wisconsin blue and driving the Trump cult out of our state. Enjoy a great craft beer and help your dysfunctional neighbor to the north get its democracy back. Now available at Arminetti Wine and Spirits in Woodstock, Illinois, and Famous Liquors in Lombard, as well as in Chicago at A&S Wine and Spirits, Back of the Yards, and Grand Western Liquors, Ukrainian Village. Please drink responsibly. You're listening to Driving It Home with Patty Vasquez on WCPT 820. We are uh, hanging out. I'm hanging out. I feel, I, again, I feel bad for those of you who can't uh, be in the studio with me. And it would be crowded if you all were. Uh, we're in studio with uh, Cheryl Connect. She's the uh, she's the mastermind. I mean, I don't know if that's the uh, the founder of Schoolhouse Kitchen. Uh, so you uh, you're bringing your kids to farmers markets yeah. and uh, t- exploring the world of food and not just uh, how you feel about it, but yeah. how you connect with where it comes from, how it's consumed, who consumes it, right? Who has access? Because there are so many communities in the in Chicago that don't have access to fresh produce right like we have we that we call them food deserts yeah they have convenience marts there's you know um they've all closed whole foods is closed in some of these communities and things right. and by the way whole foods is expensive for right. a lot of folks so where does schoolhouse come from oh this is another part of the story so kids are little i've got great neighbors um i had happened to go up to uh traverse city michigan have you ever been, been up there? there? I've done the casino up there. I performed awesome. there. Yes. Oh, that's so cool. Um, they have an awesome food co-op called Oriana, and I just loved it. I was like, this is the coolest grocery store. If I could spend my money here on groceries, I'd be really happy about that. Um, and I just started thinking about it. It's like, what's my next act? The kids are getting a little bit older. You know, they're able to walk now. I don't have to carry them everywhere. Um, what can I do next to kind of get back in the workforce and start something 
I'm really proud of and something I think my community would be interested in doing. So I started a food co-op in Oak Park called Sugar Beet um, Food Co-op. Oh, you are sh- Jerry t- like gives me a lot of information, yeah. and he'll tell you that I am a little ADHD and I don't grab onto everything. You're Sugar Beet? Well, I'm not. We but all I mean, are. I know. We all are. But <laughs> what? Okay. It's a cooperative. So I learned a lot about cooperative economics with just... I, I love it. Like, it really gets me excited. If I could, like, go back to college, it would be to study economics. Like, you don't just, need to go back. You've done it. Yeah, it's well, not, right, not, I right. I just it's, love, you get it when I you get love it. how cooperatives can be so healing and so regenerative. And why aren't there more, Cheryl? Well, I'm, I'm, I, I, there's I, a I good bought, question. I bought into the Chicago one. Chicago market. Yeah. yeah like we're going to partner up soon. Eight, eight years ago, I bought, awesome. I bought into it. And yeah. I and like there were all kinds of things that have happened. It's supposed to be an uptown at that yep. old building and everything. Stay What's, with it. These I, things I take a long time. Okay, fine. We have, I'm not asking for my money back. I'm just like. No. Just, they just take a long time because it takes a lot of money to build a grocery store. Mm-hmm. Grocery stores aren't what they used to be. There's, you know, all kinds of automation and systems. It's all very expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, the Sugar Beet Food Co-op started literally with my neighbors. Like, my neighbors, I, it's just like the best, I don't know. It's just, I landed in the right spot with the right people. and um, I'm so jealous. I, 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 I'm sorry. It I'm is just, a good thing. It. it was a good, it's probably the most incredible work story one could tell is like, you fall in love with an idea and then all these great people come out of the woodwork to help you do what you want to do. And then it's amazing and successful. Like, boom. And I'm it, dazzled. Yeah, yeah, I'm dazzled. And you're just, <laughs> it's just like, what? You know, how did this happen? Um, so, yeah, we started the co-op and um, learned every step of the way. Like, I, you know, again, I have a BFA in painting. <laughs> Jerry, Jerry walked in and told me, yeah, why don't you listen to me when I tell you all the things that I tell you and send you emails? And <laughs> Jerry. Rock Chicago did an article I sent you this morning. <laughs> you, everything did, in it. Like I was, today was not a great day. Today was not a great day. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's sorry. okay, Patty. Yeah. We can revisit okay. the yeah, story. Sorry. Anyway, yes. like a co-op often takes a very long time time to get off the ground. I was lucky. We had how, the most... When you say not, it took a long time, how many years were we talking? Oh, mine didn't take that long because <laughs> we had we had like the golden crew. Yeah. Um, you know, Chicago markets, I, yeah, maybe seven, eight years. And there's one in Lombard okay. called Prairie, which is really amazing um, too. So if you've got a co-op in your community, I would suggest you look it up, support it any way you can because it's a really... Wonderful place. I'm gonna put my state hat on for just a second. Get it? Do you guys take uh, so like? For, are there um, sort of an exchange like SNAP and? Uh, yeah. Go ahead. Yes. Absolutely. What about senior vouchers? Because farmers markets are supposed to have uh, the they use they'll take senior vouchers in the summer. Okay. But are they? Do you know if they're working with you guys with senior vouchers? I they're don't different. know that. Okay. I actually, you don't and I know need to that. talk off the air then at some point. I'll, yeah. I'll reach absolutely. Out. I, um, so the. The thing about opening a co-op is it's kind of like having a child. You want to kind of raise it up and then hand it off to a very successful and well-trained and amazing GM and board. So I really have nothing to do with a co-op anymore. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Because you have moved. Once you did that, you're like, mission accomplished. Now I must build another empire. Right. I don't have the skill set to run a grocery store. And that's what it is. It's a really amazing grocery store that really supports local 
you know, farms and it has all these, you know, awesome products that are made by people in our community and in the Chicagoland area. Um, yeah. And all that money stays in our community. Like our owners are really literally the owners of this business. Now, when you say you wish you'd, you'd study economics in college, can I just say, yeah, yeah did you? It's, I mean, guns and butter. It's all they were going to tell you, macro and micro. And you'd Maybe be like, I want to teach economics in that's college. That's fine. Yeah. I mean, like that you could do and not have to have the degree. Be like, here's right? the real world experience of economics. Well, how that's can we turn fine. this thing on its head? Why are we always yeah. reaching up, asking for someone to give us something? Exactly. We are people that make things. Yes. Right. Yeah. Well, let's do it. Let's, let's do, do it. it. We and have that's the what skills. you're doing. Well, you're doing it. Right. Yeah. Let's do it. Um, yeah, even in difficult environments, like people do this, like people are entrepreneurs and they're entrepreneurs, not just for their own benefit. They're entrepreneurs for a, a mission, a bigger vision. You don't have to be a nonprofit to do that kind of work. You can really do that work as a business owner. Right? And, and then so now you hand off the sugar beets to yeah. a board and GM. And so now you're like, what next? Well, the co-op was supposed to have a little cooking school. I thought that'd be so cool. It's like, how do you get people interested in cooking different types of foods? Or how do you get people to come together as a community? And obviously, like cooking and eating together is a great way to get people at the table. Um, but the space we got on Madison over there in Oak Park was just too small. So it was the first thing to go. And uh, I worked at the co-op for about a year afterwards, the whole time thinking, like, I think this cooking school thing is what I want to do next. And so I found a space in River Forest, and I've been there six years. And it is now called Schoolhouse Kitchen and Studio. We say we dropped the beat. It was Sugar Beet Schoolhouse for a while, but <laughs> people kept dropping their kids off at the grocery store for birthday parties. Oh, no. <laughs> so yeah, like, you gotta, we got to yeah. change this name. It's too confusing. It. Yeah. So, so you have this. So what's the, what are the age, like sort of the... Yeah. The ages and the sort of, you know, the classes, the, mm -hmm. the way you group them. Yeah. So most of our students are between ages 5 and 11. Okay. So we really serve that elementary school set. Um, we do after school classes Monday through Friday. So on Monday, we've got the little guys, 5 to 7-year-olds, and we bake with them. So it's called the Little oh. Bake Shop. They're little guys. And um, Tuesday, we do passport to cooking. So they're learning about food from around the world. Um and then Wednesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays, more bake shop. And Fridays is a special group because we do bake shop with tweens. So I'm really trying to reach into that tween teen group. They're difficult <laughs> to get interested. I know they're interested. It's what they watch on TikTok. It's what they watch on TV, oh. right? They want to do it. But they're just like, eh, I'm not sure. Like, hmm. So I'm, yeah. They're unimpressed. They're, they're hard to impress. But I will say, once we get them hooked, they're there for good. Yeah. yeah I mean, look, I wish that I had been able to. So my son is a, a freshman in college. Okay. And and I tried. Like, when he was little, I just remember, like, even when he was, like, two, I just wanted him to, ha it, it wanted to be fun. Yeah. Making pudding or making, yeah. and I, had, I bought him, like, his own baking set and stuff. And uh, and then he just, you know, he had his own. Uh, my son is the kind of kid where if someone else is teaching him, Mm -hmm. He's much more invested for whatever reason. Like I don't mm -hmm. know if he, he wants no, to impress true. them, where he already knows that I'm impressed. Yeah, like he's my kid. I don't, yeah. you know, I don't touch. But if other like he wouldn't let me teach him how to ride a bike or how to mm -hmm. swim or how to play baseball, I'm fine. <laughs> 
I'm just saying it was really hard. No, it is. We come upon this friction with our own kids because they yeah. want you to like. Well, I'll speak from my own experience. They want me to be mom, right. not cooking instructor. Yeah, they want me to like cuddle and you know even. Oh yeah, <laughs> even bedtime stories. Yeah, teenagers like. They want me to be the soft space where they land, not the woman teaching them algebra. I, I think there's something to that. Yeah, there yeah. is. We were in the forest preserve one time with Griffin, and I'm not saying he can't ride a bike to this day, but I'm saying he can't ride a bike to this day. Uh-huh. He was like nine years old, and he falls off his bike in front of me, and I and I go racing up to him, and, and he gets up, and he goes, you know what I was thinking, Mom? I was thinking that when man was able to start using words, they started being able to name things, and then they made rules, and then they made laws, and then they were, you know, once they stopped worrying about their own self-preservation, they learned how to not uh, be attacked by lions and, and got shelter uh, and that's why we have society wow. and he goes what do you think mommy and i go maybe you need to concentrate on balance wow. and pedaling. <laughs> he's thinking all this while he's trying to ride a bike <laughs> i can't he's always like that was just always he's yeah. always thinking about something else that's awesome. but i also think that like if he's i can't yell at him for yeah. you know, like focus on pedaling and right <laughs> Right, focus. And I think, and mm-hmm. even now, I, and he's starting to. He wants to know more. And at nineteen, mm-hmm. it's not too. It's never too late. It's never too late. Right, and that's why I love that you're doing with tweens. Yeah. Right. And so, do parents drop their kids off? Typically, yeah. Yes. Our River Forest location is small. It's like this cute little cottage. And it actually has another business in it called River Forest Kitchen, which is the incubator kitchen for small businesses. So okay. small food businesses grow out of that other business we own there so so it's two things kind of happening in one little building so we don't have a lot of room for these big family classes that i'll have at portage park so portage park is much bigger um we our first class is already coming up with um jonathan porter of chicago pizza tours come on seriously he's the coolest guy he's an oak parker he's taught with us before and his kids always come too, and they're like his sous chefs. So they really embody this like whole family thing, cooking together. Like, you know, like nothing's precious about it. He knows what he's doing. Like he's a true pizza nerd, right? right? Like he's got he's got the skills. But he makes everybody feel so at ease and the kids get involved. So that's that's our big first family event together. So I'm excited about that um, happening at Portage Park because uh, I really like the idea of families cooking together and being relaxed. Um, so, yeah, we'll have more family classes at Portage, um, whereas a lot of the other classes will just be drop-off. So you drop your kid off for an hour and a half, we're going to mm-hmm. make homemade Oreos, or we're going to make hand, handmade pasta or gnocchi or whatever. And then they're going to greet you at the door with their portion of food that they made, and they're going to be so proud to share. Yes, They're so proud to share with you. And then you get the recipe and you make it at home. All right. So how do folks, for both locations, because we yeah. are, we're all over the place with listeners, where yeah. where can folks find out more about registering their kids? So um, one website is called iloveschoolhouse.com. So there's a River Forest thing and a Portage Park thing on that website. I am absolutely. I I want to be your friend, and I don't want to be. Do I don't want to be needy. Well, uh, um, <laughs> we have a wine tasting with Girl Scout cookies coming up. Yes, we do. Uh, we're going to put that on the books. I know that uh, our friend uh, Kirk Banks has like uh, which uh, which beer goes with Girl Scout cookies. Oh, Did you, can a I nice just porter? Oh, I'm saying. Yeah, Tagalog. Would you say the Kamala would oh, go? Oh, yeah. Yeah, with the Tagalog. Oh, yeah. Nice chocolate caramel notes. Which ones are the Tagalongs? Are the sugar cookies? No. 
Oh, uh, shoot. No, I'm thinking Samoas. Samoas. Oh, coconut and the dark chocolate. Oh, I like those. What are the tagalongs? Yeah, what are the tagalongs? I, I don't know. I, I'm assuming, I should know this. I was a Girl Thin Scout Mints. leader for two years. I was a Girl Scout for six, so really? I should know. So Thin Mints don't go with any wine. I think that that was no. vodka is probably the only Mint thing. Mint and Va- wine. Bourbon. I think bourbon is actually the one. Oh, I don't know. I think it's Thin bourbon. Mints and, I'm going to have to think about that yeah. one. But at any rate, yeah, I don't think there's a wine because it's too sharp. Mint and wine don't Mm-mm. match. It's like brushing your teeth and then having... No, yeah. you can't do that. That's a mess. <laughs> yeah. It was water. <laughs> you can have water with your... And, you know, we want to be fair to those that don't imbibe. Mm-hmm. But, okay, yes, we're going to do a Girl Scout cookie pairing. Oh, my God, I'm so excited. <laughs> it's happening. <laughs> uh, I'm, uh, so, I'm so excited. So Cheryl Connect uh, is the founder of Schoolhouse Kitchen. There's one in, we're gonna, I, I know we keep saying Portage Park, but I'm going to go ahead and claim you for Jefferson Park. Okay, call, that's call it. <laughs> I think I it. thought I was in Portage Park, and that's what I've put on everything. So, <laughs> <laughs> Okay, you've put it on everything, so I will also say Portage Park. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah. Well, well, if you get lost at Montrose. <laughs> yeah. yeah, just look for Repchai. You'll see Just go Rep across Chai. the street. Yeah, and that's yeah. the nice thing is that there's actually a couple places when, when parents drop kids off for the cooking classes. Yeah. They don't hang out and, like, that would be weird to stay in the room, or do they sometimes? No, I don't. So the vibe is weird when they stay in the room. I've had parents want to stay in the room, and I'm like, Kids really change. Mm-hmm. Do you remember when your son was little and like you might have dropped him off for a play date or a sitter came or something and cry, cry, cry. They do not want to be separated from you and they cry. But the sitter will say the minute you walk out the door, they're like over it. They're done. Yeah. So I think kids really need some space from parents, especially when they're doing some things like this. Some parents are really over protective. I'm, I won't say overprotective, but they maybe underestimate what their kids are capable of. I always wanted to leave, uh, uh, you know, off air. I'll tell you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I advise parents just go get a walk or go listen to a podcast in the car. Just go run an errand. It's an hour and a half. Go to Rep Chai. You can go in that area. There's actually a cool, uh, like a resale shop. I think there's a comic book shop in the area. Mm -hmm. Um, There's, I mean, you know, your parents, you probably don't want to drink and drive, but Babes has, uh, I know, I think they have pretty good pizza right next door. You can, maybe one beer. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not not judging anybody. I drive around the area. There's great places to stop by. There's Sunnyside Plants in Jefferson Park on Milwaukee Avenue. You. So if you're looking, I'm just for folks who want to know about the area. Yeah, I'm so excited that you're in the community, and I'm so excited that we already have another another date booked with you here. We'll figure out the best time to do that. I'm excited too. Uh, it's yeah. Girl Scout season, though. The cookies are selling. I okay. So I wasn't going to bring this up because my mm-hmm. husband and I were screaming about this this morning. The fact that it's even a story. Did you see that there were Girl Scout cookies that were stolen? Yeah, there was a, a, no. a Girl Scout robbery, and people. It was like, how is this on the news on another like on a news network? Uh, I think it was not far from here. And, really? Uh, yeah. People are rude. I know. <laughs> can I tell you? I don't know. So I, I was a girl. Like I said, I was a Girl Scout for six years. Mm-hmm. I was never a big salesperson. Okay. I like my badges. I had my first aid badge, nice. and you know whatever all the badges were, uh, arts and crafts, whatever. I don't. I don't know where the money. For, I, I, we paid for all my Girl Scout. Maybe it was subsidizing other Girl Scouts going to camp, or I don't even know where the. Yeah, I mean, I when I was a leader, we. We made some money through cookies. I didn't really like the sales I hate part, it. too. My, well, when I was a leader, the kids were like five. And, right. You know, it was really the parents selling everything. Five-year-olds aren't going to sell stuff. We did do one thing outside of a grocery store where the kids made some posters, and they dressed up, and they were like, yeah. 
kind of heckling all the showers. <laughs> <laughs> but they made up some like little cheers, which yeah. I thought was cute. Um, but I didn't really like them selling. It felt a little strange Icky. for a five-year-old. Yeah, I think uh, uh, <sighs> cannabis shops, uh, concerts, and college dorms. Those are your high-traffic, high-sales areas. And they, then, yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> the cannabis shop. I'm just saying. Yeah, that's, no, where you, that's where I would do it. Yeah, yeah. I absolutely agree with We that. are going to be best friends. I've decided that already. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I don't live in Oak Park, but now I wish I did. Well, I'm going to be over here all the time. Well, yeah, you're right down the street. Yeah, right. so we can well we can go to Babes. Uh, I have not other. been to Babes yet. Yeah, well, but I've made friends with the people across the street at Miskas. Oh yeah, yeah, they've got a little bar over there too. I've never, you know, I've never been to Miskas, and I've been down the street to Moonflower. Oh, is yes. lovely. Did we ever go to Moonflower I Cherry? Um, it's dangerously lovely. Oh my god, and they had plants. Yes. From the plant place yes. that you keep talking about. Sunny Sides, yeah. Sunny I think uh, they had plants from them. I want to say, what was that? There's a downstairs floor I've heard about, too. There's a second floor, yeah. Okay. Yeah, what's yeah. that? Nightshade. Yeah. Oh, I think. Nightshade and Moonflower. Yeah. yeah. The music was great. The Well, I saw other people, other people had food. It looked very delicious. I just had one fancy old-fashioned. Yeah. And I was it's like, ridiculous. this is ridiculous. How am I not taking Good. you there? Really? Well, we, All right. we've been sickly. Yes. <laughs> You've been sickly? Sickly. Yeah, I mean, before that. I, know, I think Tom and I went once. I, I think, think it's that, a yeah. really great place. Yeah. It was kind of packed, too. Yeah, I've been there twice, maybe yeah. three times. There were a lot of people there. It was, I like the vibe. It's a date. Literally. It's a yeah, date. It's a uh, date. Check out I Love Schoolhouse. Dot com. Dot com. Yeah. Register your kids, and now uh, you'll be hearing a lot more of Cheryl. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah, she's not. It, she's like, oh, God, she's got her claws on me. Ooh. Thank you so much for joining us, Cheryl. And, uh, this how was did, such how, a pleasure. Oh, my God. How'd you like the Kamala Stout? From I me? loved it. It really is delicious. Yeah. This is a great beer, and I'm I'm excited. I found to... one for you uh, to go home with. Excellent. Oh, oh yeah. you did? Yeah. Oh, I might have another one in my And locker. I love the artwork on the, oh, yeah. it is Kamala. It's uh, It's amazing. a strong vice presidential stout. <laughs> <laughs> Now it's in me. Thank you, Kirk. <laughs> I need that to be a soundbite. More after this. We'll wrap, we'll wrap up in just a moment. I, I, there's not going to be time. <laughs> the Hal Sparks Radio Program. This is the week that Steve Bannon perp walked. Give a round of applause. Uh, I do. I do. I'll call them up. It'll take. That's not it. No, that's the sound of people seeing the spot on his forehead when he walks into the chair. That's not it either. That's the wrong one. Uh-huh. That's the owning the libs meeting call. <laughs> he looked great. Yeah, yeah, he did, didn't he? He was wearing makeup. Hal Sparks, Saturdays from 11 to 1 on WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk. You're listening to WCPT 820, because facts matter. It has been a lovely evening, and I want again. I want to thank our friend Cheryl Connect from iloveschoolhouse.com. Uh, she'll be back in the next a couple weeks to uh, do a wine pairing with Girl Scout cookies. Uh, I'm gonna try. To, I have to look at the whole list, but I know that there's um, the trefoil is the girl the sugar. I think it's the like the the shape of the Girl Scout uh, symbol, and then there's Thin Mints, Samoas. I don't know all of them because they keep changing them, and uh, but we're gonna have a good time with that. Uh, thank you so much, Cheryl, for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's really fun meeting you. And uh, again, uh, I look forward to having you back. I, I, I'm going to be a little bit needy. 
Okay. <laughs> I like to be needed. Jerry's like, ah, oh, she really likes you. I'm just, just, just going to say. So anyway. Have a great night, everybody. Devil's Advocate is up next. Thank you to our sponsors, mm-hmm. Monaco Brewing, uh, Kids Above All, and of course, European and U.S. Car Service. Go to EuropeanUS.com. Keep the phone number in your car in case you are ever in a fender bender. 773-248-1200. Thank you again, Jerry, for everything. Have a great night, everybody. Thank you, Lady B. Take care.